It's so great to have you in church with us this morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethel Church. And uh, maybe you've been coming to Bethel for a long time. Uh, or maybe this is your first time. We're so glad to have you. Maybe it's your first time back since COVID. Some people I met today. Uh, that Maybe you're visiting family and friends. And, uh, and it's great to meet you. Uh, I've only been here a short while. How many know when you were young and in love, uh, you used to measure your relationship in months? Remember that? Well, this is my five-month anniversary. And so I'm young and I'm in love with you, and so we'll measure it by months for uh, a little while to come, I'm sure. Let me ask you this question this morning on Easter Sunday. Is there anything impossible for God? No. Oh, you guys are confident and assured. That was quick. You're the church people. You've been around and thinking about this for a long time, I think, right? I mean, we have this quick answer. No, there's nothing impossible for God. We sing songs about it. We read scripture stories about it. Our faith is established on that. Nothing is impossible for God, and we believe it. If you're here and maybe you're not quite sure what you believe about God, uh, whether God exists or not, but you're thinking it over and you, were, you might think, well, if there is a God, then it would only stand to reason that there would be nothing impossible for that God to do. As Christians, we believe that nothing comes from nothing. What I mean by that is that nothing can cause itself to exist. If something exists, it's because there was already something that caused it to exist. As believers, we believe that that something is God, the, the prime mover, the initiator of life. That God created something from nothing. There was nothing, and then God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty and void, and then God created structure. Uh, he, he created landscape and ecosystem and populated it with life of birds and fish and animals. And in the midst of that, he placed humanity. God is the initiator and sustainer of life, having created it all from nothing. And so we say nothing is impossible for God. But let me ask you this question. Is it possible that God could create a rock so heavy he couldn't lift it? I mean, if God is omnipotent without limit, power, power without limit, and, and he could create any outcome he wants to create, could he create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? I know it's early, it's Sunday morning, this is the 11 o'clock service, and uh, all of you joining us online, we're so glad to have you joining us online this morning. We're joining with the 9.30 crowd, they were already in here, and they've gone to brunch, and you guys have already eaten, so you're good to go for a while, so it'll be good. But this mind bender, it's called the paradox of omnipotence. This is a question that's been around for a long time, and it's really an attempt to create doubt about the existence of God. It's a circular argument, a logical fallacy, we call it, right? It's like every outcome is designed to fail. You know, if God can create a rock so heavy he can't lift it, then there's something he can't do, and so he must not be God. And if he can't create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, there's something he can't do, and so he must not be God. The idea is to create doubt that nothing is impossible for God, that's untrue, and ultimately refute the existence of God completely. You know, the question falls short, doesn't it? It's a logical fallacy, right? Logically, uh, you know, uh, it would, if it's, we would say that God can do anything that's logically possible to do, right? Because if you throw logic out, it would be equally uh, logically true to say, well, God could create the rock that's too heavy for him to carry, uh, and then it, he could lift it. You know, the, the, the logic doesn't make any sense. Uh, so we throw that out. Uh, apologetically, 
apologetics being like the Christian study of defending the faith and the existence of God, uh, how we answer this logical fallacy is that it really misunderstands the Christian claim that God can do anything and that nothing's impossible for God. Really what we're, saying, uh, what we're saying when we say that is that there's nothing is impossible for God to do that he determines to do. There's nothing of God's desires to do that he cannot do. You know, the Bible actually says there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot do anything that is contrary or contradicts his character. In James uh, 1.13, it says that God cannot be tempted by sin. In Titus, it says that God cannot lie. It goes against his character and his nature. And so there are some things God can't do because he's God. But there's nothing that God desires to do that he cannot do. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and your powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I just want to encourage you this morning on Easter Sunday that the same God who created and sustains the universe is the same God who created and sustains you. Can I hear amen this morning? Matthew uh, 19 says that Jesus looked intently at his disciples. He said, humanly speaking, this is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. I want to encourage you today that the same God who worked miracles and provided healing and restoration in the pages of Scripture and in the pages of history is the same God who is alive and at work in your life today. Amen? And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I want to encourage you that there is nothing God cannot do. Nothing is impossible for God. But here's the thing. As much as we acknowledge that, how many know that sometimes it's easier to believe something than to actually live that thing out? It's easy to say we believe that nothing is impossible for God, but sometimes we have a hard time believing that God can do something about my situation. We say we believe that nothing's impossible for God, but sometimes we struggle to believe that God can make something out of what appears to be nothing in my life. We struggle to believe that God can mend the brokenness, restore peace, joy, hope to our circumstances. But my prayer today is as we, as we leave this service this morning that we would say with full confidence, full hope, full assurance for our lives that nothing is impossible for God. Let me hear you say that this morning. Nothing is impossible for God. We're gonna look at the story. Uh, or if you're just joining us, actually, uh, you can turn to John chapter 11. We're gonna be looking at a story in John 11 today. We're in the middle of a, a seven-week sermon series, and this is week six. And so if you're just joining us, you can go on YouTube uh, or on our Bethelotab.ca webpage, and you can find all the other uh, uh, sermons in the series there. But we've been looking at seven statements Jesus makes called the I Am Statements. They're found in the Gospel of John. And he's talking about seven statements that Jesus uses, metaphor, to help us better understand who he is and ultimately who God is as a result of it. You know, it's important uh, because one of Jesus' mandates uh, in coming to earth and in taking on humanity uh, is that he was to be the perfect uh, representation and reflection revealing to us who God is. 
If you want to see and know what God's like, all you need to do is see and know what Jesus is like. Uh, I have a son. He's on the camera right now. All those of you watching online, you're benefiting from his excellent camera work. And uh, Jaden's 12. And uh, sometimes they call Jaden Chair Jr. Uh, because in many ways, we're very similar. We're very much alike. But we're not a perfect representation of each other because he just has some food tastes that aren't up to my quality of, of, of standards and, you know, some of those different things, some refining that he needs in his taste buds and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus is a perfect representation of who God is. In John 14, 9, it says that anyone has seen me, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so if you want to know what God's like, you just need to look to see what Jesus is like. And so Jesus uses these seven statements to tell us and describe to him characteristics, and, uh, 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 characteristics of his life. It's important for us to understand who God is. Because understanding who God is informs how we relate to him. And it also influences how we and what we receive from him. You know, when someone's your friend, you receive from them differently than someone who's a stranger, someone who's an enemy. And so we need to understand who God is. It influences our lives and relationship. And so our culture is really in a crisis of identity, isn't it? Our culture is really trying to understand themselves and to define themselves apart from God without understanding who God's created them to be and the relationship he desires with them. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at this idea that only in knowing who Jesus is can I know who I am. Through Jesus, we see the character of love and mercy and grace of God, the God for whom nothing is impossible. And so this is the reality that we were talking about this morning, is that we might believe that nothing's impossible for God, but if we're honest, sometimes our experiences can leave us questioning. How do you reconcile a loving, omnipotent, an omnipotent God with what you are or what you have experienced? How do you reconcile when there's a gap between your expectations and your experiences of God? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 11. We're going to look at a family who is experiencing that very dichotomy themselves. Uh, they're right in the middle of this kind of circumstance. John chapter 11. As the chapter opens... We're introduced to characters we've met before on Jesus' journey, uh, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, friends that Jesus has spent time with before, uh, friends who the scripture says he loved. Well, Lazarus, at this time, we were, were told, has fallen uh, yeah, severely ill. And in their desperation, Mary and Martha have sent a message to Jesus, telling him of the circumstances and asking him to come and do something about it. Who do you call when you're in trouble? You know, you call someone that you believe can help you and, and respond in your need, right? Uh, anyone have a guy? What I mean by a guy is like, you know, when you have a need, like your car breaks down, you, I have a guy. Let me call my guy, right? You have the car guy, you know? Uh, maybe you have a handyman guy. Let me call my guy. Maybe you have a friend who's your financial guy. And, you know, you're talking to your friend and you just say, let me call my guy. Anyone have a guy? Anyone, you are the guy? Anyone the guy with the pickup truck, right? If you have a pickup truck, you're everybody's guy, you know? Just everyone needs help moving and help going to the dump. It helps to know a guy. Well, it just so happens that this family knows a guy. 
And the guy that they know just happens to be really good at miracles and healing. And so they call for him. They send for him. But what they experience doesn't quite match up with what they expected. John 11 verse 4 says, When Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So, Although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. It's frustrating, isn't it? Anyone ever had kids? You call them for dinner? Dinner! It's like the fifth time I've called them, right? So they call Jesus and he stays where he is instead of going to where he's needed. How frustrating is that? I thought he loved them. I, I thought he cared. Like the least he could have done was send them a prompt response. Right? The least he could have done was to send his word. There's another story in Luke chapter 7 where it says that a complete stranger came to Jesus and said, my son is sick, can you heal him? And it says in that story that Jesus simply said the words and the messengers went back and found that the son completely healed. If Jesus could do that for a, a stranger, surely he could do that for someone he loved. Mary and Martha expected a lot from Jesus. At the very least, they expected a prompt response. You know, in the background of the story, as we look in a few verses from now, we'll see that Jesus had some run-ins from some people of this area in Bethany, and it says that they were out to kill him because he was causing disruption and an uproar. And people were claiming him to be the Messiah, and, and as this movement began to grow, people began to plot to kill him. And so Jesus and his disciples had left the area, but Mary and Martha were so desperate that they called out to Jesus, would you please come back? And do something for us. But what these friends of Jesus experience doesn't meet their expectations. Verse 7. Finally he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Verse 11. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought, Lazarus meant, uh, they thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Verse 16, I love this verse. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Anyone ever have that ride or die kind of friend? Like this guy, he's all in. He's like, well, Jesus is going, I guess we're gonna go too, right? That's the kind of friend you need. Jesus says he arrived at Bethany. He's told that Lazarus had already been dead in his grave for four days. I remember a few years ago reading a newspaper article, uh, a story of a 78-year-old Mississippi man named Walter Williams. 
And uh, the story about Walter Williams is that he had passed away in his home and his family and the coroner had come and they had pronounced him dead at uh, nine o'clock at night. And so the funeral home had come and they had transported him to the funeral home and they were preparing his body for the funeral. And at 2.30 in the morning, the reason Walter made it to the headlines was because at 2.30 in the morning, the funeral director discovered that Walter wasn't dead. He was in fact alive and kicking in his body bag. Now, I don't want to, I, I don't want to, like, I know some of you, that's your worst nightmare. I don't want to freak you out a little bit. Uh, but this is Walter's story. And uh, it seems that in the process, his pacemaker had kicked in and restarted his heart. Can you believe it? Wow. Wow, wow. That's all I have to say about that. Walter died two weeks after this, but for, for good this time. <laughs> His family was glad for the extra two weeks, I'm sure. For Lazarus, though, there was no pacemaker to bring him back. Now, I know that there's no levels to death, but Lazarus was dead, dead. Like, he was really dead. See, in Jewish belief, on the third day after death, that's the day the spirit left the body. And so in Jesus arriving on the fourth day, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that all life was gone from Lazarus and with it, any hope for a miracle. Jesus has said that Lazarus' life uh, would not end in death or his sickness would end in death, but it had. And so Jesus approaches the village. Mary sits at home processing her grief, but it says that Martha runs out of the village to meet him. I, I don't know if she was running out to give him a piece of her mind <laughs> or if she was running out there because she simply wanted to be with him. But she runs out to meet Jesus and she greets him with these words, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you'd been here. Have you ever had that if only conversation with Jesus? Jesus, if only, if only you'd prevented me from making that decision, Lord, you could have stopped this. Jesus, if only you had intervened in that circumstance. Jesus, if only you'd saved my relationship. Jesus, if only you'd kept my business from failing. Jesus, if only you'd healed the disease. Jesus, if only you had kept them from that accident. Jesus, if only you had done what I expected. These if only conversations. We've all had them. And so as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, how do I reconcile the gap between my expectation and my experience with God? For Martha, she had a lot of faith in Jesus. She had this what uh, if only conversation, but uh, she partners it with this other statement uh, found in verse 22, and it's, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus, Martha, she's reconciling the if only you'd been here, but she says, my faith is still at the point of saying, but even now, I know that you can do whatever God empowers you to do. See, when there's this gap, though, between our expectation and our experience, what we really need to recognize is that it's the gap that Jesus wants to fill himself. So it's the gap between our expectation and our experience that Jesus wants to fill. We see that here, John eleven twenty three. 23. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. 
Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last day. But Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, and everyone who lives in me, believes in me, will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? He's saying everyone who's in me is alive. Well, Martha, she had come out to say that Jesus was too late, and he had reminded her that with him it's never too late. And even as her heart is despairing, Jesus is pushing against her despair and refuting her doubt by giving her hope. Even though this seems to be the end for Lazarus, it's not the end. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying, and everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. What's important for us to understand as Christians in, our, in this context is that Jewish believers of this day believed in resurrection. They believed that there was a resurrection to come in the end days. They believed that for Jews and for the people of Israel, there would be a resurrection. We often look at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection power of Jesus, and that's important. But that's not what Jesus is introducing to her here. She already believed, yes, Lazarus will rise again on the last day. But what Jesus is saying to her is that it's not about a resurrection event. It's about a resurrection and life relationship that we can have in the here and now. It's not about future. It's about right now. Jesus is saying, don't look to the future event of resurrection as your hope. Look to me right now as a resurrection and life now. Anyone who lives in me will never ever die, he says. Jesus is trying to fill the gap between what you expected and what you're experiencing, not with something, not with a future event, but with someone. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. See, life isn't fulfilled by things going according to plan. Life is fulfilled by relationship with the great I am. And Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And I am with you here and now. Well, Martha, she's getting a little fired up. So she goes to get Mary. And she brings her outside the village. The Bible says that there are all the people are in the house with Mary and, and they see her get up to go and so they assume she's going to Lazarus's grave and, and they, they want to go and support her and, and mourn with her. Anyone you're ever just trying to get like a little bit of privacy, a little alone time, you just can't get away, right? And so the sisters kind of go out and everyone follows along with them uh, to lend their support. Verse 32 says, When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord... If only you had been here. She has the same sentiment. If only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Jesus hates the hurt and the pain that comes to humanity through sin and evil and through death. Where have you put him, he asked them. So they told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? It's interesting to see here that there's two sisters who are both in the same situation. They both give the same response to Jesus. If only you'd been here. And yet Jesus responds, responds to them and reacts to them in completely different ways. 
To Martha, Jesus pushed against her despair with the truth. Let me remind you of the truth, Martha. She needed this intellectual support. In her moment, she needed to know that Jesus was in control. When Martha or Mary comes out, instead of pushing against her sadness, says that Jesus enters it and stands alongside of her in her grief. For her, she needed emotional support. She needed to know that Jesus cared. Two sisters in the two, same situation with the same response, but they each get a different part of Jesus, a different response. And, and I think it's a vital for us to fully understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. You know, when we see Jesus in this moment, we see God, fully God, this supreme view of our destiny, God who is our truth, and yet we see Jesus, fully man, who is able to share in our suffering. That's the story of the incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, sharing in our suffering. In this moment, we see what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring the ministry of truth to humanity, but he also came to bring the ministry of tears. How many know that we all need a ministry of truth and at other times we need the ministry of tears? Uh, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, sometimes to lay truth on people when they're grieved is absolutely wrong, but other times just to weep with them and not tell them the truth is wrong too. It's about discerning through the spirit what is called for in the moment, grace and truth, love and compassion. Jesus brings these things to these girls. Verse 38 says that Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb and a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them, but Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, it's been, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Well, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. See, it's important for us to know that Jews believed in resurrection in the end day, but they did not believe in life coming back in this moment. They rolled the stone aside, and Jesus looked up to heaven, and he prayed, Father, thank you for hearing me. I love Jesus. He's kind of cheeky sometimes. Thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of those people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. And Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told him, told him, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus is about to fully release him from the grip of death. I want to go back just for a moment to the words these sisters had spoken. And I'm sure if Lazarus could have, he would have said them too. Lord, if only you'd been here. What they really were expressing was that their hope was built on the power of Jesus to make something happen in this moment. And so they had felt as though Jesus had failed their expectations. The power to make something happen had come and gone. But Jesus hadn't really failed their expectation. He was exceeding it. 
He was exceeding their expectation because it seemed like their hope was on something happening. And what he really wanted to release, uh, show them was that Jesus steps into the gap of between our expectation and our experience and he exceeds it every time. Because while their hope had been in something, he wanted to reveal to them that their hope was really in someone. The girls thought that Jesus had failed them, but really they were getting everything that they had asked for and so much more. They had asked for Jesus' presence to bring healing, physical healing to Lazarus, but instead they were getting so much more from Jesus. In Jesus' presence in Martha's despair, they were getting hope. In Jesus' presence in Mary's grief, they were getting comfort. And Jesus' presence in Lazarus' death was bringing him life. What do you do when Jesus doesn't show up or do what you expected him to do? Watch for him to exceed what it was you expected. Watch for him to reveal himself in ways you weren't expecting. Jesus fills the gap between our expectation and our experience. And he exceeds it every time. You know, as we read this passage, and I've read it so many times this week, and, and one thing that kept standing out to me is the verse uh, four, the word says, end. Jesus said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. And then it dawned on me that Jesus wasn't lying. He had said that his sickness wouldn't end in death, but he never said that his sickness wouldn't take him through death. And this is the point of this passage, is that maybe our disappointments with Jesus come because we we're looking for a way out of something, uh, when really Jesus is saying, I want to take you through something. And in taking it, you through it, you're going to experience more about me, you're going to discover more of my character, more of what I want to do in and through your life. As we started talking about this passage, we were talking about Jesus' love for Mary and Martha. Of course, he'd respond to them because of their love. Maybe in this process to begin to question his love, like he didn't show up, Lazarus is dead. They became disappointed, disillusioned. But in disappointing them, Jesus revealed himself to them in ways far beyond their expectation. Jesus had said that God would be glorified through this. I think there's a moment where you look at this passage and say, yes, God is glorified through the amazing story of a man brought from the dead and back to life. But what they couldn't have known was that this story was an illustration and a precursor to something much deeper that was about to happen. Because Jesus' presence in Lazarus' death had brought Lazarus' life. But Jesus' presence in Lazarus' life was about to bring Jesus' death. See, in verse 53, as the chaos began to ensue, as people began to talk about this Messiah, this one who can raise people from the dead, as their fervor rose, verse 53 says, from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. In bringing Lazarus new life, it would come at the expense of his own in the physical sense. And this precursor shows us exactly what Jesus was about to do for you and for me. The life that we have today, eternal life 
and abundant life in the here and now comes at the expense of Jesus exchanging places with us. See, as Jesus called Lazarus out from the tomb, we know that in just a few short days from this story, it would be an exchange of places, that Jesus would be the one lying in the tomb, dead behind the stone. Exchanging places is always what Jesus had come to do. Mary and Martha thought that they had been disappointed because their expectations hadn't been met. As their brother laid in the tomb, they had no idea that soon they would be challenged again with an even deeper disappointment that the Messiah, the one they were counting on, the one they were looking to, he would be in the tomb. And yet Jesus came to exchange places. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says he personally carried our sin in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and alive to what is right. Scripture tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, there's a moment where he utters his final words. These words were simply, it is finished. It is finished really meant that the exchange had been complete. The exchange had been that Jesus had taken the sin of humanity upon himself and in exchange had given humanity all that was his. A right relationship with God, righteousness, eternal life, hope for the future, and abundant life for today. The exchange was complete. It was finished. As people stood at the cross and later at the tomb, they would have had their expectations dashed. That Jesus had disappointed them because their experience showed them that he was now in the tomb. But what they would soon discover is that there is nothing impossible for God. And that Jesus was not just bound to a future resurrection event. But Jesus says, I am myself resurrection and life. And as he came forth from the grave, he said that the penalty of sin, of death has been defeated. Death of the natural life is temporary. It's a part of life, but it doesn't end in death. It's through death and through his death that we enter into eternal life. And so this morning as we celebrate Resurrection Easter Sunday, we are presented with an opportunity to receive that gift from Jesus. It requires death on our part. It requires an exchange. Our death for his death, and for our death is simply a death to ourself. It's our death where we simply say, Jesus, I surrender the lordship, I surrender the ownership and the leadership of my life to you. Would you take my life and lead it and be the Lord of my life? Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray over my friends today. God, that whatever it is that they're facing, they would know. Lord God, that nothing is impossible for God. As we look to the resurrection, Lord Jesus, we are reminded that it's not just an eternal hope, but it's a hope for today. That's a bright hope for today and for tomorrow. And so we can live with the joy and the fullness and the peace of knowing that you are with us. God, with your presence with us, God, nothing can stand against us. It might take us through some things, but we'll never end with those things. So Jesus, we thank you. Go with us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter, church. God bless you as you go. We'll see you again next week.